0: The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives." One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Uh, the the film Manchester by the Sea uh, tells the fictional story of Lee Chandler. Um, Lee Chandler, when you meet Lee Chandler in this movie, he is uh, withdrawn, very sullen, very combative, looking for fights in bars wherever he can find them, very indecisive, works as a, a, a janitor, but even simple repairs that he should be able to just take care of, he's kind of uncertain, um, and and wants nothing to do with people. When he has opportunities to actually interact with some that doesn't involve fighting them, he, he draws back. And he's just a very, well, he's a shell of a man. One day he gets a, a call, uh, his brother has died. Um, now, Lee lived in Boston, his brother in Manchester by the Sea, where Lee was from. His brother has died, Lee makes his way back there, and ultimately Lee is given responsibility to care for his brother's son, Patrick. And that begins a a journey in which Lee is forced to confront a horrible thing from his past that happened when he lived in Manchester-by-the-Sea. You see, Lee was married. He had a wife. He had three children. Lee liked to drink. One night, he and his buddies were drinking in his home and doing drugs as well. At two in the morning, his wife came down and said, get these guys out of here and, and they left and Lee decided to stoke the fire a little bit so that it wouldn't be so cold and then decided to walk to the mini mart to get more beer. And when he came back, the house was ablaze. He'd forgotten to put the grate or the, the screen in front of the, the fireplace, the log had fallen out, the house had burned down. His wife survived, the children had died. And Lee could never forgive himself for this horrible thing that had happened. He bore the weight of this guilt throughout the entire film. In fact, as he built this relationship, I should say as as Patrick built this relationship with him, and as he was feeling this responsibility to care for Patrick, he ultimately said to Patrick, I can't stay here. I can't beat it. Meaning he couldn't deal with the guilt from what had happened in his past. Where do you go with your guilt? That that was the question that was on the heart of the author of Hebrews as he wrote to these people. These people were tempted to turn away from Christ, back to Judaism, back to Abraham, back to Moses, back to the law. So the author of Hebrews wrote Hebrews to help them understand that if they turn from Jesus, even back into Judaism, they would be turning away from God altogether. Now he touches on a number of things throughout the letter, but the thing that he really emphasizes is the priesthood of Jesus. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the priest is the one that you went to with your guilt. He handled the sacrifices. He interceded for you before God. He spoke on God's behalf for you, to you. The the priest stood between you and God because you couldn't stand there on your own. And so the author turns to these beloved people and says, where will you go with your guilt? If not to the great high priest who made the final sacrifice and lives forever to intercede On your behalf, if you turn from him, where will you go with your guilt? Now, to get them to understand the gravity of the situation and the danger they were putting themselves in, he takes them to the story of Melchizedek. Now, they would have been familiar with Melchizedek. We're not. At best for us, Melchizedek is an obscure Old Testament figure. I'm going to help us, by God's grace, understand more about Melchizedek, The goal is not, so when we have our next chili cook-off and during the Bible trivia portion of the trivia contest, the question comes up, who is Melchizedek? The goal is not to get you to be able to answer that question before everybody else. It's not the goal. The goal is to help us feel the weight of that question. If I turn away from Christ, where will I go with my guilt? If you're not a Christian, if you don't turn to christ where will you go with your guilt the author answers that question over the course of the entire chapter all of chapter seven we're only looking at part of chapter seven this morning so in a way this is like part one of a two-parter part one introduces the question where will you go with your guilt part two is going to answer it now the chapters bleed together so we're going to get part of the answer here we're not going to try to make a clean break But what we are going to do is zero in on this guy, Melchizedek, as we begin to answer that question, where do we go with our guilt? So there's three things we're going to consider. First, who he was. Who was Melchizedek? Secondly, why we need someone like him. And then third, how Jesus is the true and greater Melchizedek. So who he was why we need someone like him, and how Jesus is the true and greater Melchizedek. But first, let's pray. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you would be with us. Lord, I I do pray, and I know we're all praying together, uh, even for ourselves and one another, that this would not be just a morning in which we learn something more about the Bible, as good, as important as that is, but that you would take us beyond that to letting the truth Of your word, seek deep into our hearts that we might grow in our love for you, our adoration of you for all you have done for us, and live more fully for your glory. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, Amen. So, who was Melchizedek? Let's consider his place in history. We get a clue right off the bat, chapter 7, verse 1 For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we can stop right there. Verse one takes us back to Genesis chapter 14. That's where you read the story of Abraham's interaction with Melchizedek. Abraham's nephew Lot had moved to Sodom. You remember that story? Abraham's nephew Lot had moved to Sodom. Sodom got into a war with a coalition of four kings. And there's a whole backstory there. I'm not gonna take the time to unpack it. You can go back and read Genesis chapter 14. So Sodom, Lot's a resident, Lot in his household. Sodom gets into a war with this coalition of four kings. The four kings come and and defeat Sodom, take Lot and Lot's family and, and the citizens, several of the citizens of Sodom into captivity. So now Abraham hears about this. And Abraham pulls together an army and he goes and conquers that coalition of kings who had captured Lot and his family and the other people from Sodom. Abraham goes, conquers them, frees the captives. The captives come back, they're back in Sodom. The king of Sodom says, thank you very much. And there's Abraham and then this figure Melchizedek comes out to meet him. Abraham offers Melchizedek tithes. Read about that in this passage. Read about it in Genesis 14. A tenth of all his wealth uh, Abraham offers to Melchizedek. Melchizedek offers Abraham bread and wine. And then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So that's what happens in Genesis chapter 14. The author of Hebrews is going to build on that. But who was this guy? You don't read anything about Melchizedek before Genesis chapter 14. And then in Genesis chapter 14, we get a whopping three verses. And then you don't read about him again anywhere else in the Old Testament until you get to Psalm 110, and there it's half of one verse. And then you get to Hebrews, and we read about him quite a bit in Hebrews. But that's it in the Bible. So we've got to look here. What does this passage tell us about him? First of all, it says, look back at verse one, that he was king of Salem. Now, Salem was a real place. It would become Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It says that he was priest of the most high God. Now, this is a way of referring to, to the God of the Bible, to Yahweh. So he was someone who, like Abraham, had been called to God and and called, you know, commissioned into his service to follow him and all the blessings that God made and God promised to Abraham. God had called this Melchizedek in a way that, you know, Abraham probably didn't know about. So here's Melchizedek, someone who is both king and priest in service of God. Verse 2 tells us that he was king of righteousness. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Verse two also tells us that he was king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, Salem is from the Hebrew word shalem, which sounds a lot like what Hebrew word? Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. Verse three, we're told that he has no genealogy. So look at verse three. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And so, you know, it seems like he maybe has lived forever, right? Some people have looked at this and said, well, maybe this is not a real historical figure. Maybe this is a Christophany, a, 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 an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus in human form. He even says he resembles the Son of God and continues a priest forever. So is this what we're dealing with here? Is this Melchizedek actually not an historical figure? And most commentators believe that he is an historical figure. Both the fact that there's a reference to a place in which he was serving as king and was functioning as a priest, and because his priesthood and the quote-unquote eternal nature of it is compared with Christ's eternal priesthood if he was not a real person and a Christophany, you would have, in a sense, two priesthoods because they're compared to one another, not considered to be the same. Okay, so we'll unpack that more in a little bit, but there's very good reason to believe that this is a real person, Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, and king of righteousness, and a priest of the most high God. And he met Abraham, and Abraham offered him tithes, and he offered Abraham a blessing, and he offered Abraham food to nourish him. And the author of Hebrews is making his case about the superiority of Jesus by referring to that actual historical event. So let's, let's turn then to the role of Melchizedek in the author of Hebrews' argument. And let me summarize it this way, and I'll have to unpack the summary, but let me just unpack, the, let, me, let me state his case. The case that the author of Hebrews was making to these people boiled down to this. Because Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ and overshadowed Abraham, the priesthood of Christ is greater than the priesthood of the Levites under the Old Testament law. Okay, now, let's unpack it. Let me restate it, first of all. Because Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ and overshadowed Abraham, the priesthood of Christ is greater than the priesthood under the law of Moses. All right, so let's start with how Melchizedek overshadowed Abraham. Look at verse 10. This is where the argument really... Actually, no, let's let's jump back up to verse 4. Verse four tells us, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a 10th of the spoils. Okay, so Abraham does not stand before Melchizedek and Melchizedek comes to him and offers Abraham tithes. Abraham offers Melchizedek tithes. And then look at verse seven. Verse seven says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Who does the blessing between Abraham and Melchizedek? Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So in the dynamic, there's two ways in which it's demonstrated that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes. Now, how does that demonstrate the superiority of Jesus over the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament law to which these people that the author of Hebrews was writing to, that they were being tempted to do. How do you make the connection? Well, the author of Hebrews does that for us in verse 10. Concerning Levi, Levi, the Levites were the descendants of Levi who were the priests. Concerning Levi, verse 10 for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, what's going on there? There was an idea, a principle in, in uh, Jewish thought that the descendants participated in the actions of those who came before them. So for Abraham to be the patriarch of the faith and for all of his descendants to be represented in him, as it were, That means that Abraham's actions for good or for ill, a lot like Adam's actions, for good, for ill, had an effect on the generations to come. What the author here is saying is, listen, guess what, guys? The Levites, they were in Abraham. So when Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek, guess who else was offering tithes to Melchizedek? The Levites. And when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, proving that he was the superior to Abraham, guess who else was getting blessed? The Levites. And so in that sense, the author of Hebrews is trying to say to his people who are tempted to return to the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, and forsake the priesthood of Jesus, he's saying to them, listen, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham. The Levites were in Abraham, therefore Melchizedek's greater than the Levites. But then he goes on and says, but you know, we got to talk about Jesus here, because we're talking about the great high priest who is Jesus. So yes, Melchizedek's greater than Abraham, consequently greater than the Levites, but that matters because Melchizedek foreshadows Christ. So Abraham is overshadowed by Melchizedek, Melchizedek overshadows Abraham, but Melchizedek foreshadows Christ. Now, when we get to the last point, how how Melchizedek, or Jesus is the true and greater Melchizedek, we'll talk more about this, but the emphasis for right now is on the eternal nature of Christ, he is eternal, and the apparent eternality, can I use that word? Eternal nature of Melchizedek. So we're told that Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy, key idea, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Most commentators will say, this is just a way of saying, we don't know anything about Melchizedek's beginning. We don't know anything about his end. That's not the point of the spirit of God, you know, inspiring Moses to write Genesis to tell us about Melchizedek's beginning and end. He had a beginning and end. He had a father and a mother and a mother, but that's not the point. The point is to compare this Melchizedek who didn't have a genealogy to the Levites who did. You see, the, the Levites had this habit of dying. That's why genealogies mattered. The only way to know who the proper descendants of Levi were was to Keep track of the genealogies, which is why when you read so much of the Old Testament, you read a lot of genealogies. Guess who didn't need a genealogy? Melchizedek, because Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's gonna point us to the one who truly has no beginning and no end. Now the link there, I don't have time to get into it, but that crucial pivot point to branch the one argument in the other, to kind of you know, leverage them together, is Psalm 110, verse 4b. <laughs> you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, speaking to Jesus. All right, so you can go read that on your own, or we'll talk about it some other time. Um, but the point, again, the point that the author of Hebrews is making to these people who are tempted to turn away from Jesus and the only place that they can go with their guilt is that, listen, because Melchizedek foreshadowed Christ and overshadowed Abraham, the priesthood of Christ is greater than the priesthood of the, the Levites that you're wanting to return to. In fact, it's so much greater that the turn from Christ is to turn from the only hope of intercession the only hope of dealing with your guilt that you have. So that's the role of Melchizedek in the author's argument. I've explained the implications for the Hebrews. Why why do we need someone like Melchizedek? This is the second point. Here the argument is from the greater to the lesser. If even the Old Testament priesthood, which was instituted by God, is no place to go anymore with your guilt, then how much more certain can we be that we have nowhere to go with it? I mean, even if God, again, if if the Old Testament, God's word, good, good law, law of Moses, good priesthood, Levitical priesthood, no longer a place to go, then how much more certain can we be that we don't have anywhere to go with our guilt? We, we live in a, a society, you have friends, you have neighbors, you have coworkers. perhaps you have family members who don't know Jesus Christ, and they have nowhere to go with their guilt, and they feel that. They do. There's a great article over at the Gospel Coalition by Trevin Wax. He quotes Wilfred McClay's essay, The Strange Persistence of Guilt the strange persistence of guilt. McClay says this, guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. In other words, quoting Wax in that same article, one might think in an increasingly secular society that when God goes away, so does guilt. But the reality is the reverse, when God goes, guilt has nowhere to go. It pools like a patient with internal bleeding. There may be no signs anything is amiss, but the danger remains. The guilt won't go away. It is still being carried and people have nowhere to go with it. Now, some of that you know, desire to do something with it with this guilt turns outward. And one of the things that, that uh, Wax does a great job of pointing to, and we'll make sure this article gets in the um, growth group study guide, a link to it so you can read it. But well, one of the things that, um, that Wax points out is that so much activism in our society is actually prompted by guilt. Right? So, so people feel guilty. They, they see other people in people groups who are oppressed, who are... Victims who are suffering, and they're not, and they feel guilty and they want to do something about it, but because they're moving toward that group of people or that person in order to deal with something in them, the things that they do are ultimately for them. Even if it doesn't do anything to help that person or people group, even if it ultimately harms that person or that people group, because it's not about them. It's about dealing with this unresolved sense of guilt because I'm not suffering and they are. So some take that guilt and turn outward with it and actually do harm instead of good. But others, like Lee in Manchester by the Sea, turn inward. There's nothing that can be done to resolve this sense of guilt over wrong. Why? Because God's law is written on the heart. We're made in God's image. We're made to know God, to be in relationship with him. Sin has violated God's shalom. That relationship is broken between us and God. We know that we cannot stand before God and make a claim for our own righteousness because we need the king of righteousness. We know that. And even before people can name the king of righteousness as Jesus and what he did on my behalf, there's still this sense of there's God, here's me, there's an impossible gulf that I can't bridge because of my guilt. Where will I go with it? The danger that the author of Hebrews is addressing is not what do we do about those people in society that have guilt and know where to go with it, But what do we do with the people that are inside the church that know where to go with their guilt but are turning away from it? That's the risk of apostasy that is being addressed in the letter of Hebrews. Back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, the author says, if people turn away from Jesus, there's no way for them to be restored again to repentance because they're forsaking Jesus the only priest, the only sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the only intercessor who can stand between them and God. That's the danger that the author of Hebrews is addressing. I hope that we've been able to do some justice to the story of Melchizedek, but again, the goal is to see Jesus, the true and greater Melchizedek. So let's turn there in our third point. How did Melchizedek point us to Christ? It's more than just the fact that Melchizedek appeared to be eternal and Jesus Christ is. And what I want us to do as we close out here this morning is to focus on the person of Jesus, actually, and not as much as work. Because we're going to come back to what Jesus did next week. How it is that Jesus made it possible for our guilt to be addressed. We'll focus on that next week. But right now, I I want us, I think it's Psalm 34. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let's do that for a few minutes, okay? Let's exalt the name of Jesus. Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. Jesus is the true priest of God Most High. He is the one who made the once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, for the forgiveness of our sin. He rose from the dead and is now at the right hand of God, doing what priests in the Old Testament did, not making sacrifices. The final sacrifice has been made, but interceding, interceding. Every day we sin in so many ways, in thought, word, and deed, by the things we do and the things that we, left, that we leave undone. and Every time we sin, Jesus points to the merit of his blood. Blood's been shed, but we need his merit. We need the forgiveness all the time. Jesus is the true king of righteousness. Melchizedek's name meant king of righteousness. Jesus is the righteous branch, Isaiah chapter 11, the true king of righteousness that was anticipated even 700 years before Jesus came and did his work. Why can we exalt Jesus for who he is? And not focus first on his work because the Old Testament exalted Jesus for who he is before he even came and did his work. Jesus is king of righteousness, Isaiah 11 tells us. Jesus is king of peace, Isaiah 9 tells us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus is the true king of Jerusalem. God said through Psalm chapter 2, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And Jesus inaugurated his reign, From the cross. There Jesus was lifted up that we might be saved. How must we respond? First, come to him. Come to him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, come to him for your salvation. There's nowhere else to go. You you may have questions. What, What does all this mean? Let's talk after the service is over. But believe right now, you've nowhere else to go but that he died to welcome you in. I love the great hymn, come ye sinners, poor and needy. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. If you feel your need of him, come to him. The same goes for you if you're here. You've made a profession of faith in Christ, but a long time ago, your heart became hard toward him. Return to him. Even now, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Whatever the case may be, whether you're one who needs to come to Jesus or return to Jesus, let me tell you this, there isn't any place that you can go with your guilt, but there is a person and his name is Jesus. And it would be my privilege to talk to you about him. Come to him or return to him. And then secondly, adore him. Adore him. I, you know, I love Christmas hymns. And as I was, you know, writing this part of the sermon, I just kept thinking about, oh, come let us adore him. That great, you know, sing choirs of angels, sing in exaltation, sing, all you citizens of heaven above. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. May it be that what is happening in us as a church, because of who Jesus is, not just what He's done, is that we are people whose hearts are just filled with adoration. For him. If Jesus is superior, even to the means God provided in the Old Testament for dealing with guilt, such that to turn away from Jesus back to the Old Testament would be to lose him altogether, how much more if we neglect so great a salvation? Jesus is the true and greater Melchizedek. His priesthood is forever. His wounds still plead your case before God. Turn to him. Never leave him. Let's pray. Father, we come confessing that we do leave you. Every time we sin, we're turning our back on you. We are so thankful that your grip on us is stronger than our grip on you. We're so thankful that you pursue us even as we're running away. And so Lord, we just, we surrender. We return to you, we come to you. We pray that you'd help us to marvel before you at your holiness and your righteousness and your justice and your beauty, your majesty. And the simple fact that you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to lift up our hearts before you and offer you the praise that is due your name for your glory and our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.